God has revealed himself and made himself known uh, in a book that you can read, amazingly enough. Uh, think about that. Uh, what's the most difficult question that you have ever faced? The most difficult problem you have ever run across? What's the issue that gnaws at your guts, that keeps you up at night, popping tums like M&Ms? What is the thing that really bugs you? Wouldn't it be nice if there were some kind of answers, some place you could turn where you had an absolutely authoritative guide, where you could find hope and you could find help when you were in need? And wouldn't it be nice, too, if that kind of a guide existed and gave you real-life examples of real people in real situations and what they did and how their choices worked out? And wouldn't it be great if there was a book like that that was written by someone who is completely trustworthy, who loves you, and is written in language the average person can understand? And I would say, and I hope that you would say, that that kind of a book has already been written. We do have an authoritative, absolutely trustworthy guide to life and its difficulties, full of real-life examples, both positive and negative, written by someone who loves us and therefore wants what is best for us. We have a book that gives hope to the hurting, and help for the needy, answers to the questioning, light to those in darkness, peace to the worried, stability to the unstable, morality to the amoral, grace to the rebellious, and life to the dead. We have, as John Wesley said, a book that is not a book that a man would write if he could, or could write if he would. It is God's book. And it is given to us to help us and to encourage us and to bring us salvation. And this week is the second week in our series, This We Believe. And this week, we're going to talk about the Bible, which reveals to us not only all of the answers to all of life's biggest questions. Where's God when it hurts? Find that in the Bible. Does anyone care when I go through pain? answered Bible is God out there if there is a God what kind of God is he what's he like you can find that in the Bible you can find answers to questions like is there a purpose and a plan and a design is there a reason why we are here or are we just a random accumulation of molecules floating in an absurd universe you can find that in the Bible in fact, you can find those very questions raised in the Bible. You don't believe me? Read Ecclesiastes, okay? Read Proverbs. Read Job. Read the Psalms. And you, what you find is people inspired by God calling out to God with their questions and problems and having God come back with answers. You are loved. You are cared for. The universe is not random. 
there is a purpose and a plan, and I am working even through the most difficult of life circumstances. How do we know? Well, where did the Bible come from? That's I want to look at th- at just uh, just a few questions here this morning. First one is, where did the Bible come from? And the answer is, the Bible came to us by revelation. Now, most people know the word revelation as the, the title of the last book of the Bible. But the word revelation has to do with God's self-disclosure of making himself known, or, if you will, revealing himself. Making himself known, showing us who he is and telling us what he's like. Now, obviously, we believe as Christians that God's supreme act of self-disclosure or revelation comes to us in Jesus Christ. That, you know, as, as, as Jesus uh, said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Why do you ask? Show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says in another place, I and the Father are one. So in other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. And we also would affirm that there have been many other types of revelation that God has made, from visions to dreams to uh, miracles of various kinds of healing and floating axe heads and, and seas parting and this kind of stuff, right? We also would say that those things are part of the revelation of God as well. But generally speaking, we would say that those things occurred for a relatively limited period of time. Jesus is alive today, but he is not visibly present with us in the same way that he was for those 30-odd years uh, while he was ministering in, uh, in Israel, right? And so we have, and we have, you know, incidents like the Red Sea crossing. Well, that's a one-time event. And if you weren't there to see it, you don't have ongoing access to it, except through the Bible, which God inspired to be written, and he, he reveals himself through the scriptures. Uh, the Bible says that these, all these events, um, the Bible was created as an inspired record to be the conduit of his revelation to all people in the entire world. You know, a relatively small group of people went through the Exodus, but billions of people have opportunity to read about it and see the God that it reveals. Amen? Amen. Uh a relatively small number of people got to witness Jesus' life and ministry. A relatively small number of people got to see Elijah minister or got to hear the words of Isaiah or saw Moses come down from the mountain with the law of God. Or an even smaller number of people were there at their creation. But all of these things are recorded so that God can reveal himself to us and that we can learn from it what he is like and who he is and what kind of God is there. Uh, one of the best passages that describes this happening is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. If you've got your Bible, I'd like you to go there. We're not going to do uh, nearly as much flipping as I had you all doing last week. If you didn't catch up, 
uh, with that um, last week and you need help, uh, see me. I can give you all the verses that we cited and you can look at that. Um, but this week we're just going to look at just a few verses. Second Peter chapter 1. Verses 19 to 21. This is what Peter writes. He says, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's just a couple things I want to be sure to highlight in this passage. You have a pen. This is okay. You can do this. Take your pen and underline in your Bible. Uh, You won't go to hell for it, I promise. Okay? Underline in your Bible the phrase, men spoke from God. Peter is really careful to remind us all that the words of the Scripture aren't his words. They're not just Paul's words. They're not just uh, Matthew's words or Moses' words or Jeremiah's words. That these men, when they spoke, they spoke from God. And it is God who caused them to write. And so that's why over and over and over and over in the Scriptures you see things like this. The word of the Lord came to, say, Isaiah, son of Amos, or Jonah, the son of Amittai, or, you know, whoever. Uh, it came to, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, saying, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Moses, and he said, write these words. And over and over and over, what we're told is it was not simply these guys that decided, you know, I think I'll write some scripture today. That seems like a good idea. And we'll speak on behalf of God and, and, and people will follow it and that, that'll be a good thing. No, Peter says men spoke from God. Or you read over and over and over the, uh, these words, thus saith the Lord, if you have a old King James, or thus says the Lord God Almighty. Or The Lord spoke and said. The writers of the scripture are very concerned to to indicate to us that it's not simply their words. That it's God's word who's telling that his, his speech is what is being recorded. And that God is telling them what to say. He reveals himself to them and they wrote. Uh, that's what Peter means. This is another thing to underline. No script, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For prophecy was never produced by the will of man. In other words, these guys that wrote the Word of God were not simply writing their own thoughts. They didn't make it up. God used them to write His words, and we hold them to be without error as originally written and given. Why? Because God is the source. And while humans make mistakes, God does not. And so while we do not have the original manuscripts of the Scripture, 
we hold that there was an inerrant revelation that was given, and then through a process of textual criticism, we assembled the manuscripts and we put them together with a great emphasis on we need to, def- to, to derive what God originally said because God's actual words really matter. We hold the original writing to be without error as they're originally given. Now, another thing to underline in your Bible, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. What's he talking about? Well, consider this. In the Old Testament, the Bible says the only way that a person should be or could be recognized as speaking for God is if they, what they said came true. And this is the way that that would work. You know, it, if you study prophecy in the Bible, what you see is this. You see a whole lot of uh, what I would call hortatory material, where these guys are exhorting people to do this, and don't do that, and do this, and stop doing that, and you all are going to be condemned by God if you keep doing that, and you better do this instead, okay? If you read the prophets, you get a lot of that, okay? But anybody can come up with that, anybody. And, and say, thus says the Lord, do what I say. Anybody can come up with that. And in fact, people have and do. There are lots of people out there that claim to be prophets. But here's how you knew the prophet of God. The prophet of God would make a prediction of some event in the near term coming true, and it would be something contrary to your expectations. Not what everybody thought was going to happen was going to happen. Or he would do a sign. Remember when Moses is at the burning bush and he says, I'm going to go and speak to your people and they're going to say, the Lord didn't appear to you. And he says, well, then do these signs. And he says, stick your hand into your coat and when you pull it out, it'll be covered in leprosy. And when you stick it back in, your hand will be restored when you take it out. That's pretty good. Houdini couldn't do that one. He says, take your staff and throw it on the ground, and when you throw it on the ground, it'll become a a snake, and when you reach down and grab it by the tail, it'll become a staff again. And if they don't believe those two signs, take some water out of the Nile and pour it out on the ground, and it will become blood. Why did God tell him to do that? so that they would have a sign, something that could only be accomplished by the power of God, which would validate the other stuff that he said as being from the Lord. And so every time you have a prophet, you have one of these signs being given. And it's either a near-term fulfillment of a prophecy that's predicted, or it's a miraculous event or some kind of power that the man has that is unusual. You know, for example, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Elijah has told the people three and a half years prior to this, it's not going to rain until I say so. He goes and hangs out in Sidon, which is where Baal, the storm god they were worshiping, is presumed to live. Nothing bad happens to me for the entire three and a half years that I live there. And then he comes back and he meets him out, he meets the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which is where um, 
you know, on mountaintops, that was supposed to be where you worshiped the storm god because you'd have these storms that come in around the mountain and so forth and must be Baal up there doing his thing. And so you'd go up there, and it hasn't rained in three and a half years. And Elijah sets up his deal, and he says, look, I'm gonna, there's a lot of you. You get to sacrifice first. I'll do the evening sacrifice. It's fine. Whichever God answers by fire, since you say you worship the storm God, whichever God answers by fire, he is God. And all day long, the prophets of Baal do their thing, and they slash their bodies and so forth. And, and the, the text, as you read it, is really funny. It says, but no one answered. There was no one home. You know? And so Elijah starts to mock, and he starts to say, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's on a trip. You know, took a vacation. Surely he's God. Shout louder. Okay? And all day long this goes on. And then Elijah, at the time of the evening sacrifice, makes his altar. And he builds the offering, and he puts, lays the wood and the offering on top of it. He digs a trench around it. He says, take a little water. Pour it over the top. It hadn't rained in three and a half years. Water's precious. Get a little more water. Pour some more. We're going to set this up for God to demonstrate his power. Pour a little more water. And it's full. Ditch is filled up. The sacrifice is soaked. And then he stands back from his sacrifice, as you ought to do before you're about to do what he does. And he prays for the fire of God to fall. And what happens? Boom! All of a sudden, it's consumed everything. Not just the sacrifice, but the, the wood the sacrifice was laid on, and the stones the altar was made out of, and the water in the trench, and the dirt underneath it. Just consumed. Why? To show that Elijah, when he spoke, was the prophet of God. And all these other fellows were just pretenders who should be put to death. Men spoke from God. He said, Peter says, we have the word of prophecy made more sure. What's he talking about? Well, the prophets also made a lot of other prophecies that were much longer term. Comfort, comfort my people. Remember that one? People who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And I will send my messenger ahead of you to prepare the way for the Lord, right? And these kinds of things. And these were all not fulfilled in the prophet's lifetime. So how do we know that they were trustworthy prophets? Because Peter says they got fulfilled. When did they get fulfilled? When Jesus came. We have the word of the prophet made more sure because we have seen the Messiah and he lived. And all that the prophets have spoken was confirmed. And so we know and we can see that the Bible is God's book. Do you realize that there are about 300 major prophecies about the coming of Messiah in the Old Testament? About 300. And mathematically, the odds of just 10 of those prophecies being fulfilled about the same person of which the most the most the nearest ones to the person were 400 years prior to his birth now think about that 400 years 400 years would put you at 
what is that? 1711? Okay. It's a long time ago. 1711. That's about 90 years after the pilgrims. It's a long time. 400 years are the nearest to Jesus of the prophecies about him. But for just 10 of them to come true is a number equivalent to one in the number of molecules there are in the universe. And over 300 of them about Jesus, and they all are fulfilled. All of them. How does that happen? It doesn't happen unless the Bible is God's book. Now, the final thing I want you to see from this passage is really tightly related to the next concept I want us all to see, which is the concept of inspiration. Uh, Inspiration is the answer to the question, how was the Bible written? And uh, both this passage and 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, which we're also going to look at in just a second, don't turn there yet, uh, give us some good clues as to how that came about. Uh, if you look here at the end of verse 21, what you see is this phrase, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's he mean by that? How many of you have seen a sailboat? Raise your hand. See a sailboat. Okay. If you've seen a sailboat, what you've seen is a ship who, which is under power by what? The wind, right? The sail sets up. You set up your sail. The wind blows, and you get driven along. And that's literally the wording that's used. If, if you look back at the Greek text underlying the English that we have here, the idea is being pushed along like wind in a sail. And so that these guys, as they were riding, were being pushed along by God the Holy Spirit. And he was providing the power and the enablement for them to do what they did. So that what is written is what God wanted written. Uh In other words, this is not a process of inspiration like we talk about with musicians or poets. You know, these guys that go out and, you know, sit in a field somewhere and they see the sun come up or they see it go down and they go, wow, that was really cool. And then they write something down, you know. That's not the idea of inspiration from a biblical perspective at all. It's that the Holy Spirit provided the power and the enablement. To push these guys along so that their own personalities and vocabularies and writing style are all preserved so that Peter doesn't read like John, who doesn't read like Paul, who doesn't read like Luke, who doesn't look anything like Matthew, who doesn't read like Mark, who doesn't read like James, who doesn't read like Isaiah, who doesn't read like Moses, who doesn't read like Solomon, who doesn't read like David. All these guys have unique personalities and vocabularies and writing styles, but it's because of God the Holy Spirit pushing them along that what is written is exactly what God wants to be written because he provides the power to write it. Um, Now, if you got your Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. This is one you should have memorized. Uh, Maybe you can work on it with your kids. This This is a good deal. 
Good verse for everybody to memorize. Paul says this to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Again, it's God working through the human authors. The word he uses there when he said, I like this translation because it preserves the word God breathed because that's what that's literally what reads there in the Greek text. But it's the you know, we use the word inspired, but it's the it's the idea actually of exhaled. That God breathed out the scriptures into the minds of these men as they wrote. So that what he wanted recorded was his words. And that makes it therefore useful or profitable to us. Uh, We don't believe necessarily in some sort of divine dictation theory where God said, hey, I'm going to lay something on you here. Now get your pen out and take notes. Okay, now that happened in certain cases. You do see that as an example when Moses gave, you know, God gave Moses the tablets of the law, the first set, and they were in, these tablets were inscribed with the finger of God, it says. But then when Moses broke the tablets at the foot of the mountain because of the golden calf incident, Exodus 32, uh, then Moses has to make a new set, and guess what? He's writing that half. <laughs> he writes that down, and he writes down exactly what God said. So in some cases, it's a direct communication, write this down. But in, in other cases, God moves through the person, and what they are writing is what God wants written. And so all Scripture is profitable. Uh, it tells us everything that we need to know to find salvation and forgiveness of our sins. It tells us everything we need to know to have our life be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Everything we need to know to understand who God is and what he is like and how, how to have a relationship with him by faith. And because it is God's inspired revelation, there is nothing in the text that leads us astray. Nothing. And where the Bible speaks and what it speaks about, it speaks truthfully in all that it addresses. And so the Bible, there's a lot of things the Bible does not address. You're not going to find uh, anything in there on how to build an engine. You're not going to find anything in there on how to conduct brain surgery or send a man to the moon. It's not the Bible's purpose to address those sorts of questions. It's the Bible's purpose to address how to have a good relationship with God, how to be forgiven of your sin, and how to live eternally in heaven with God. And it speaks a lot about those things and a lot about how to carry on as a human being in this life, but it doesn't address every topic. But every topic that it does address, even obliquely, it speaks truthfully about. And what we would affirm here, I'm going to teach you a couple theological words. Write these down. Verbal plenary inspiration is what we would hold to. That's that's. Those are the best summary words that you can get. Verbal means 
God spoke to us in words, verbally. Plenary is the word means full or complete revelation. So in other words, including Leviticus, including the genealogy sections, including Second Chronicles, including Third John, every place that maybe you find not particularly inspiring is nevertheless inspired by God. All of all Scripture, Paul says, is useful for correction, for training in righteousness, for teaching who God is, what he is like, how can I have a good relationship with him, how can I live at peace with God, how can I carry on good relationships with my neighbors whom God has created. All of those things the Bible has lots to say about. And all of it, like I say, including Leviticus, including Second Chronicles, all of it is inspired by God. Verbal plenary inspiration. And that brings us to the last question, what's the Bible's place in our lives? And the answer is that the Bible has supreme authority. A lot of people treat the Bible as if it was just one more set of religious opinions that are out there. You know, well, you think this, and the Bible says that, and the Quran says this, and the Bhagavad Gita says this, and the Veda says that, and the teachings of the Buddha are these, and uh, this is what uh, this is what Lao Tzu had to say, and you know, you kind of put all these kind of things all on the same sort of plane. But let me tell you this, there is one guy that I know for sure is the Son of God. And the reason that I know for sure is that he was raised from the dead after claiming to be the Son of God. And I want to show you three things about what he said about the Scripture. Three verses, or three passages I want you to look at. First one, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 18. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what, this is what Jesus says. You know, the thing is, if a guy claims to be God, don't believe him. If a guy claims to be God and raises from the dead, better take notes. This is what he says. Matthew five seventeen to 18. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, Pass away from the law until all is accomplished. What's he talking about? An iota or a iota, if you're a uh, more of a Greek student, Pastor Jim, uh, is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And when he says a dot, he's either referring to the Hebrew letter yod, which is the smallest letter in Hebrew, or he's referring to the little mark that Hebrew uh, uh, readers would have put in a, in a line of Hebrew to separate certain letters that look similar from each other to tell you, okay, this is this and not that. This is a scene, not a sheen, or this is a sheen, not a scene, <laughs> okay? Uh, two letters that look identical. Uh, you put a little mark there to show 
which one is which. And Jesus says, not even the tiniest little portion, not the smallest letter in Greek, which was, the, by the way, the Bible of Greek-speaking Jews, the Septuagint is what he's talking about, the, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek that happened about 70 B.C., does not that, not the smallest letter in that, not the smallest letter in Hebrew is going to pass away out of the Scriptures until everything has been fulfilled. In other words, you know, there are people who say, well, you know, I know the Bible has certain prohibitions morally, but hey, that's in the Old Testament. Guess what? Jesus says it's still in force. Not even a smallest letter passes out the Word of God until when? Heaven and earth passes away. So if the Bible, if the Old Testament says it, Jesus affirmed it. He believed in it. He quoted it as authoritative scripture. Uh, there's more. Uh, Matthew 24, 35. Go over there. Matthew 24, 35. Truly I say to you, or uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, yeah, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My words will not pass away. Remember what, what he said about heaven and earth passing away? Where do we see that before? When he's talking about the Old Testament. But in Jesus' day, the Old Testament was the Bible. The New Testament hadn't started being written yet. What's he doing here? putting his words on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, if I said it, the word of God. The Old Testament says it, the word of God. Now look at this. This is really interesting. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 12 to 15. I'm going to do something really interesting here that you're going to going to blow your mind, maybe. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 12 to 15. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will, speak on his, he, he, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, in other words, the giving of the Scripture is a triune act of God. That the Father gives everything he has to Jesus, who is the Son, who then passes it to the Holy Spirit, who passes it on to who? Who's he talking to? The apostles. So Jesus authorized in advance the writing of the New Testament as being from the Holy Spirit who speaks on behalf of what he hears from the Son so that what the apostles wrote, even though it's not written yet, when he speaks these words, is going to be the Word of God. So according to Jesus, the Old Testament, the Gospels, record of his words, and the New Testament epistles, all of them, are the Word of God. According to Jesus. Now again, 
I happen to believe the guy. Anybody raised from the dead has got my vote for knowing what's what on these things. And that brings us to one final question I want to ask you. What do I do with the Bible? Just want to challenge you with three things here as we close. First of all, believe all that it teaches. All that it teaches. All that it teaches. Including what it says about creation. Including what it says about Jonah and the big fish. Including what it says about people walking on water and being healed and demons being cast out and Satan and the reality of that and the millennial kingdom that is to come and all of those things that people in our day go, uh, you don't really believe that, do you? What are you, some kind of a fundamentalist? Virgins don't have children. Come on, really? Guys that are dead don't really get back up. Well, that's true, unless they are God, in which case they do. Believe all that it teaches. Number two, obey all that it requires. The author, uh, G.K. Chesterton, was he's a, he's a fountain of great lines. And one of them was, he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth in that. A lot of what the Bible requires, I'll assure you, is difficult. You get me alone for about 10 minutes, I can roll up my arms and show you some scars that I have got inflicted on my soul uh, from things that I did not obey where the Scriptures spoke clearly. And I bet so can you. And the reason that God gives us these instructions is because He loves us and He wants to help us. He is not telling us this because he wants to keep us from all the fun that there is, in the, that there is possible to have. He's telling us this for, because he knows more about life than we do. He ought to. He created it and designed the universe to work in a certain way. One of my favorite stories on this is a friend of mine, when he was in, when he was in junior high, his dad was one of these, you know, gung-ho, ex-marine kind of fellas, you know, and they had a zip line in their backyard. And the pulley broke. And uh, Sam's dad was a pastor, and uh, he was in his study, studying and, and working, and, and Sam was bugging him, you know, beating on the door. You know, Dad, I, we need a new pulley. I need to go down the zip line some more, you know, da da da, da. And uh, Sam, I'm studying right now. When I get done writing this sermon... I will go to the hardware store with you. We will take care of it. Dad, Dad, come on. I need to help. Have, you know, Sam, I love you. Listen to me. Just wait. While his dad is in his study, Sam comes up with the brilliant idea of just snapping the D-ring off on that and holding on to it. <laughs> and uh, he, he, he goes to tell his dad, hey, Dad, 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 I'm going to do this. He says, don't do that you'll get hurt. Don't do that, you'll get hurt. It's going to work, Dad. It's going to be great. Don't do that, you're going to get hurt. 
And Sam, as he tells the story, he says, you know, he goes, I was 12 years old. I didn't think, think this through all the way. And I didn't think about the fact that a aluminum D-ring on a steel cable 20 feet in the air, when I began to put weight on it and zing down it, would get forever more hot. And he says, I got about 15 feet from the end of the, of the zip line and about 10 feet off the ground when, it, when friction started to kick in. And he says, and I did what any kid would do when something is flaming red hot. I let go. Ah! Whack! You know, flat on his back in the yard, you know. He says, my dad looked out his window of his study, saw me out there going, <laughs> walked out and said, son, I told you not to do that. He goes, turned and walked back in the house and left me to suck air. You know, um, he says, he says and, and he tells this story to me, and I just was laughing. And I said, I bet you didn't do that again. He goes, no. He goes, sometimes, he goes, I think our parents love us by letting us experience the consequences of not following what they say. And I think that that is true in my case and probably true in yours. But God, nevertheless, gives us instruction because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to experience those negative consequences. Last thing, trust all that it promises. The Bible makes some awesome, spectacular claims, incredible claims, really, when you think about it, about new bodies, about new life in heaven, about a new heavens and a new earth, about being in the presence of God, about producing the fruit of the Spirit in the here and now as the Spirit enters into you upon your faith in Jesus Christ and transforms your life, about being able to actually have a good marriage as you conduct it according to the Word of God. If you don't believe me, that's a good promise. Amen? Um, and if you, don't, if you don't think that's pretty incredible for God to be able to say that, you haven't been married long enough. I'm serious. Uh, okay. Um, here's the thing. God makes us some magnificent promises. And we have to trust him with what he has promised that as we follow, as we obey, as we believe what he has told us, that he does bring those promises to fruition. He does bring those promises to fruition. What's the point of all this? God has spoken in the Scripture to you and to me, and he intends that for our blessing for us to experience the kind of abundant life that Jesus promised. You know, when we pray, we talk to God. When we read our Bible, God talks back to us. He tells us what he thinks and discloses himself and shows us his love and tells us the right pathway to pick and gives us instruction that will preserve us from destruction. And demonstrates incredible care for us. We have the opportunity, not a requirement, but the opportunity to experience all that God intends to bless us with as we read and study and obey and apply His Word. Father, we thank You that we do not have a normative spiritual book 
one that a bunch of fellows sat on a mountaintop somewhere and decided, you know, I think I'll write some Bible today, but one that was superintended and driven along by your Holy Spirit so that what is produced in, in ink and paper here before us is in fact the Word of God that tells us in an authoritative, inspired way who you are and who we are and how to have a good relationship with you through faith in your Son, how to live a life that is transformed and powerful and will be finally and fully glorified and transformed in your presence, how to share with others the wonderful news that we have found, how to answer all of life's big questions. We find it all, Father, in your word. And Father, we pray that we would not treat your word, therefore, lightly, but would esteem it, treasure it, read it, study it, obey it, trust it, believe it, apply it to our lives. We would be forever changed. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.